You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Have you ever asked yourself, if God is sovereign, then what's the point of praying? What, what difference is it going to make? I would guess that many of us have asked that question at one time or another. And I was reflecting on a particular verse um, that's in a favorite passage of mine in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians 1.11, Paul writes about God that he, and I quote here, works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God works all things, not some things. He works all things according to the purpose of his will. So if God is working out all things, his holy plan, then what's the point of praying? What, what's the point of planning anything? I mean, it's all going to happen anyway, right? Please join me, if you will, please, in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2. And if you're not familiar with that part of the Bible, go forward from the book of Psalms and you'll find it in a minute. The book of Nehemiah. I'm calling the sermon today, Prayer Planning and the sovereignty of God. And as I prepared this sermon, I realized there's no way we're going to answer all the questions. We're not going to answer all my questions. I don't know what yours are. But on this whole subject of God is sovereign, what's the point of praying? What's the point of planning? Um, we can and have actually had classes on that subject here. But even though we're not going to get all of our questions answered today, I want to show you the story of a man who obviously believed in God's sovereign control over all things, and was a man of prayer. And he was a man of planning. In the book of Nehemiah, um, we meet this man, Nehemiah. Some of you are joining us today. Again, uh, welcome to you. Uh, two weeks ago, we began our journey through this book of Nehemiah, and we found this man, Nehemiah, as being living toward the end of the Old Testament era. So even though the book of Nehemiah is kind of in the front half of the book of the Old Test books of the Old Testament, it's actually one of the last books of the Old Testament written. So it's one of the latter books in the Old Testament, and we know Nehemiah as a Jew who was nevertheless not in his home country. Even though he was Jewish ethnically, uh, religiously, he was living in exile along with a lot of other Jews in the Persian Empire years before, years before. Uh, their ancestors have been taken captive by the Babylonians, and now here one of their descendants in exile, this man Nehemiah, uh, was actually working in the palace. He was a cupbearer to the great emperor Artaxerxes. Nehemiah, as we discovered last week, had recently heard the story of how things were going back home, back in the promised land, back in the home capital of Jerusalem. His own brother Hanani and some other Jews had made that long, arduous journey up around the Fertile Crescent, 800 miles walking, or maybe riding camels. It would have taken probably two months. That's a long journey. But as these uh, friends and family members of Nehemiah found Nehemiah there in the palace in Susa, Nehemiah asked him how it was going back home, and it was not good news, was it? 
These friends reported to Nehemiah that the city walls had been torn down, the gates had been burned, and their wording was that the people of God were living in trouble and shame. How did that impact Nehemiah? Do you remember if you were here last week? How did that impact Nehemiah? Even though apparently he had never lived in Jerusalem, he probably was born in Persia, or at least born in that part of the world, Mesopotamia. How did this news of what was going on back in the promised land, how did that news hit him? Do you remember? He cried. He asked, how's it going? And his first response was crying and praying. As we explore Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8 together, we're going to see this interaction, this interchange between prayer, planning, and the sovereignty of God. So if you found that part of the Bible, I'm going to read it aloud now. I'm just going to read the first eight verses and leaving verses 9 and 10 for next Sunday. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you may send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and when I had given him a time, when I had given him a time, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams, beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Hmm. Let's look at the setting. Let's try to picture this. When did this story take place? He tells us right here in the first verse, doesn't he? He says, in the month of Nisan. <coughs> Now, you can look at your calendar or my calendar, and you're not going to find that month. But in their system, that would have been spring. Probably what well, we would consider mid-March to mid-April, somewhere in there. Now, remember, when Nehemiah had heard from Hanani and the other guests from Jerusalem, it was the month of Kislev. Now, again, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but in their calendar, that would have been winter. That would have been somewhere between mid-November and mid-December. So do your math. Even though those months aren't familiar to us, we know, looking at their calendar, that about four months have gone by. What had Nehemiah devoted himself for those four months? Do you remember? If you were here last Sunday? Prayer. He said in chapter 1, he reports to us in his memoirs that he prayed morning and evening. He prayed at least twice a day, about what was going on back in the home country. 
So at least twice a day, for four months, he wept and he prayed for the people back home. Four months have gone by since that story we read about last week. Where did the story take place? In the winter capital of Susa. In the palace of the great emperor of the huge Persian Empire. A man by the name of Artaxerxes. In this particular day, he's sitting with his wife. Maybe a private banquet. On that spring day, in the palace of Susa, Nehemiah is going to see answers to four months of praying. And he's going to see answers to four months of praying in a rather astonishing way. As he brings wine, he was the cupbearer, as he brought wine to King Artaxerxes, um, he was asked a question that to us in our culture would have sounded very caring, very tender. The emperor, the most powerful man in the world back then, looks at Nehemiah and says, why so glum? He says, why are you sad, Nehemiah? You're not sick. Why are you so sad? Now, we hear that, and it kind of warms our hearts, like, what a wonderful boss. What a wonderful boss, that he cares enough to ask, why are you so sad? And yet, what was the response of Nehemiah? It says he was scared. He was really scared. Why would he be so scared? Well, we have to get in the sandals of the people in that culture. In the Persian culture, you were not allowed to be sad in the presence of the emperor. You weren't allowed to be sad. And I suppose the logic went something like this. The king is so wonderful. Everybody knows the king is so wonderful that we actually have laws on the book saying you can't be sad in his presence. You had to be happy in his presence. And Nehemiah had been serving in this capacity for some time. He knew his job description. He knew that right towards the beginning of his job description, his cupbearer, it said, be happy. Be happy. And reading between the lines, it kind of strikes me that for four months, Nehemiah was able to, to push that button. He, he was able to hide his grief He'd get up in the morning and have his time with God, pleading, crying, weeping over the people back home, asking God, come and change. Come and restore your people, God. You promised you would restore your people. Come and, and work out your plan of redemption, Lord. Come and restore the people back home, just like you promised. Just like you promised back in the books of Moses. And then it was time to go to work. Maybe he got a cloth, I don't know, maybe he got a cloth and wiped the tears away and tried to compose himself. Got the wine, smiled, went into the king's presence. Day one, day two, day 40, day 80, day 100. But on this day, four months later, he apparently just couldn't hide it any longer. And the king noticed and said, what's the sad face about? What's the fad, sad face about, Nehemiah? I know you're not sick. Why are you so sad? So what did Nehemiah do with that? Did you notice? I kind of paused there when we were reading. Did you notice how he responded? He prayed, didn't he? 
He prayed. He, he shot up this prayer before the Lord. The Lord to help him. We'll see that again here. He was scared because the king was not supposed to have sad people in his presence. There's a proverb. Maybe you've heard, read it before. Proverbs 16, 14 that says, A king's wrath is a messenger of death, but a wise man will appease it. And so here's the king and I'm sure Nehemiah is thinking, he could banish me from his presence right now. He could even assign me to be executed. And so he seeks to honor the king, and he says, long live the king. And then he gives this honest but diplomatic reply. We'll see in a few minutes why talking about Jerusalem was kind of a scary situation for Nehemiah. And if you notice how he responded to the question here, he never names Jerusalem. Did you notice that? He never mentions Jerusalem by name. But instead he talks about grave. And he says to the emperor, why, why wouldn't I be sad? Why wouldn't I be sad? My, in my home city, my home city, my, the city of my ancestors, the, the graves of my ancestors are in disrepair. Now in that culture, honoring key people at their graves was important. And we still do this somewhat in our day. We can go to Arlington Cemetery and maybe see the grave of President Kennedy with the eternal flame. You know, there are certain people in our history whose graves are marked and are honored to this day. And we, we don't want to see graves of honorable people desecrated. Well, that was especially true back then. And I think Nehemiah understood that the king would relate to that. And so rather than naming Jerusalem, he just says, the city of my ancestors, the graves of my ancestors are in desecration. Now Artaxerxes asks another question, doesn't he? Look at verse 4. He says, what are you requesting? You can already see the sovereign hand of God, can't you? Are, are you picturing this scene? We're in the throne room there in Susa. And the king, rather than banishing Nehemiah, rather than threatening him with death, asks, what are you requesting? He's already favorable to Nehemiah. Now Nehemiah prays. I was a little ahead of myself a minute ago, wasn't I? Now Nehemiah shoots up this prayer to the Lord himself, the king of kings. Nehemiah knows that if he's going to talk to the king, he needs first to go to talk to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. As he goes into the throne room of the king, he first goes into the throne room of God himself. And the prayer isn't recorded here, but it was apparently one of those brief, in-your-heart sort of prayers. You've prayed these kind of prayers, haven't you? And so have I. Sometimes people refer to them arrow prayers, you know, where you shoot up a quick arrow to the Lord. What are some arrow prayers you've read in the Bible? Or maybe what are some arrow, arrow prayers that you've prayed? Maybe something like this. Lord, save me. Lord, give me guidance. Lord, show me what to do. Lord, protect the children. Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, give me strength. Or how about simply, hold me, Lord. You and I have been in situations where there's only time to pray a quick prayer. Nehemiah was there before the emperor. Before he responds to this question, he shoots up an arrow prayer. And then look at verse 5. He says, send me. Send me, king, to go back and take care of this problem back in my home country. Why is this so significant? 
Well, if you read the previous book, it's actually attached to Nehemiah in the Hebrew, bio, Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah. If you go back and read the book of Ezra, you're going to see some background there that has a whole lot of color to why this was a, a real step of faith on Nehemiah's part to go before King Artaxerxes and say, send me to go back and do these repairs. Fourteen years before, in Ezra's day, the people of Jerusalem had started to rebuild. They had started rebuilding the wall. And some of the neighboring tribes did not want to see that happen. They did not want the Jews to have any power, any strength. And so they wrote a letter to the emperor, this same emperor, Artaxerxes, and they said, do you know what the Jews are doing? Do you know what they're doing? They're rebuilding the wall. Do you know what? These people are going to rebel against you. They're going to stop paying their taxes. And how did Artaxerxes respond to that letter from the people around Jerusalem? Let me read to you from Ezra chapter 4. If you want to turn there quickly, you can. Verses 21 through 23 of Ezra 4. Emperor Artaxerxes wrote, Make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that the city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me, and take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehom and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. So 14 years ago, this very same emperor, this very same king, Artaxerxes, had ordered the stopping of the building of the walls in Jerusalem. And now to this same king, Nehemiah is saying, send me back to rebuild those walls that you ordered stopped pretty risky move, isn't it? In the book of Proverbs, we read this, 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. Do you think Nehemiah knew the sovereignty of God over Artaxerxes? Have you ever put a drop of water in your hand and, and just kind of rolled it around for a minute? Just maybe even just amused by how you can turn that drop of water in your hand. The, the king's heart is like that in God's hands. God can just move him wherever he wants. And I think Nehemiah understood that King Artaxerxes was no hard problem for God, that God could change his heart. And you can see that in what the king says next. Look at verse 6. What does Artaxerxes say next? Well, how long will you be gone? The fact that he asked that question shows that he's already leaning in Nehemiah's direction. He's already favorable to Nehemiah's request. He says, how long will you be gone? Four months, four months of passionate, persistent prayer are being answered right here this day in the throne room of King Artaxerxes. How long are you going to be gone, Nehemiah? Nehemiah says in verse 6 he gave him a time, but he doesn't tell us how long that was. It, it wouldn't be days or weeks. It would have to be months at the shortest. It would be two months there, two months back, time there. We do know from later in the book of Nehemiah that he later was appointed governor of that area, and he was gone for 12 years. That's quite a leave of absence, isn't it? <laughs> Nehemiah had another request, didn't he? He's going to continue to ask bold requests in faith of the king of kings. 
Nehemiah clearly had given thought to how he would respond to King Artaxerxes. He asks not only, will you send me, but he says, will you help me? Will you help me? Now, I wonder what led Nehemiah to take such bold action. And I have to believe that studying his prayer life in chapter 1, that this man knew the Bible. He knew the Bible. And he knew the character of God. He knew God's sovereignty. He knew God's grace. And he also knew the plan of God that God had promised in the books of Moses as well as other places that one day he would restore his people. If his people would repent, he would restore them from the exile and bring them back to the promised land. And so Nehemiah, standing firmly on his understanding of God that he saw in the Bible, firmly standing on the promises of God that he knew from the Bible, he asked the king for help. He asks for authority, verse 7. He asked for letters to be written so that he would have safe passage. Nehemiah knew, Nehemiah knew that the tribal groups around Judah were not favorable to the Jews. He knew that they would be in opposition. He knew that these were the people who had mocked. These are the people who had, who had bullied the Jews in Jerusalem. And he knew that coming from the north, the Fertile Crescent route, that he would have to come to Jerusalem from the north, passing right through these regions. And he says, please, king, give me letters of safe passage. And the king did. And then in verse 8, he asks for resources. He says, king, while you're at it, would you write me letters of requisition? Would you allow me to go to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, and ask for timber so that we can use those in helping construct the walls and the gates and the fortress and my own home. He would have a home there as a governor. And you realize that in these four months of praying, Nehemiah had been planning. I mean, he, he knew who was the keeper of the forest. He knew his name, Asaph. He had already thought through, what am I going to need wood for? What am I going to need timbers for? I'm going to need it for this, that, this. And so you realize, Nehemiah re realized the importance of prayer, but also the importance of, of planning. I think sometimes we, we hold those in opposition as Christians. And, and I've met some Christians sometimes who um, resist any planning. Well, we shouldn't be planning. I mean, that's just, that's unspiritual. We shouldn't be planning. We should just be praying, and, and we'll just see what God does. And, and I've run into other Christians who forget all about praying, and they're, they're, they're already off running with their plans. But Nehemiah serves as a wonderful example of a man who understood, if God is sovereign and if God is gracious, we should be praying and planning. And he was doing so. He was anticipating God's favor. He was anticipating that God would say yes to his request and that he needed to have some plan. And now the impossible journey begins. We'll look at this more next Sunday as we look at the rest of chapter 2. But if you just for a moment read verse 9, it says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, that was the name of everything east, excuse me, west of the uh, Euphrates, and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. Now apparently Nehemiah never asked for a military escort, but King Artaxerxes gave him one. And I, in my mind, I picture those weeks of journeying uh, toward the region beyond the rivers. And, and I picture Nehemiah, maybe on a mule, maybe on a camel. I don't know what he was riding. But 
Picture him smiling as he listens to the clip-clop of the horse's hooves of the military people riding with him. I mean, you know, just that reminder, that sound reminded him God has gone above and beyond anything I ever imagined, anything I ever asked. I didn't ask for a military escort, and yet I got one. (coughs) Did he realize God was very gracious in providing everything he needed? This amazing turn of events is attributed to whom? To what? That there was a desperate need in Jerusalem. For 14 years, everything had been lying in ruins. Desecration, shame, he calls it. And now everything's turning around. Everything's turning around. Did Nehemiah respond to all this and say, man, what a clever negotiator I am? He he never said that, did he? I doubt that even entered his mind. Nehemiah didn't say, man, what a great boss I have. I mean, you've got to hand it to Artaxerxes. I mean, no, there's a boss. I mean, he knows how to take care of his people. He didn't say that, did he? What did he say? Look at verse 8, the end of verse 8. You can underline this if you want in your Bible. And the king granted me what I asked. Why? For the good hand of my God was upon me. For the good hand, the gracious hand of my God was upon me. There's so much we can learn from this amazing narrative in the book of Nehemiah chapter 2. But let me ask you to think about two questions as we look back at these eight verses. Let me ask you two foundational questions that relate to this whole issue of prayer and planning and the sovereignty of God in your life and in our life together as a church. You and I face decisions. You and I face obstacles. We face difficult situations in life. And sometimes we get so discouraged, we just give up, or we don't even try. We don't even try to see a solution to the problem we're facing. We don't even launch into new endeavors for the Lord's glory and the good of his people with kind of a defeatist attitude of, what's the matter anyway? You ready for the first question? Is God able? Is God able to answer our prayer requests? One of the lessons about God in this passage is clearly that he is sovereign. He is the unquestionable, ultimate authority over everyone and everything. If you had been alive back in this era, the 400s B.C., and you were to interview anybody, anybody in the Western world, who's the most powerful man alive, And I guarantee you, almost everyone would say, Artaxerxes. He was the most powerful alive, most powerful man alive back then. And yet God could move his heart, and God did move his heart, and Nehemiah knew that. He knew that God could. God was able to answer his prayers, and so he prayed. If we don't believe that God is sovereign... If we think God is somehow limited, God is powerless, then why would we pray? Jerry Bridges said one time, prayer assumes the sovereignty of God. I think he's right. Prayer assumes the sovereignty of God. If God is not sovereign, we have no assurance that he is able to answer our prayers. Some of you have heard me tell this story before. I had a I have a friend that used to pastor a church in the mountains of West Virginia, and 
He said there was an old man in his church that said, if God don't turn on the lights, they don't get turned on. <laughs> that is one of the most simple definitions of the sovereignty of God I've ever heard. <laughs> if God don't turn on the lights, they don't get turned on. Now, if we believe that in all of life, if we believe that in all of life, that God moves people, he's sovereign, there's nobody that can look at God and say, oh, no, you don't. You're not going to control me. You're not going to tell me what to do. That there's no one alive who can hold back the hand of God. If we believe that as God's people, if we believe that he is sovereign, we will pray. We will go to the King of kings and Lord of lords. We will go to the one in charge. And we'll say, oh, Lord, change people. Change me. Change my situation. As I was working on this sermon, I kept going back in my mind to one of the lesser-known hymns of, of John Newton. Most people know John Newton for his most famous hymn, probably the most famous hymn in the English language, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. That wasn't the only hymn that Pastor Newton wrote. He wrote another one that has this line in it. We actually have a slide of it, so if you're taking notes, you might want to jot it down. John Newton said, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. I think Pastor Newton understood the character of God there, didn't he? When you pray, who are you praying to? You're praying to the king, a king who is not only sovereign but good and gracious. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. Don't be afraid to ask him for big things. For his grace and power are such, none could ever ask too much. You're not going to offend God. He's not going to sit on the throne saying, whoa, that's, that's a bit much for me, you know. <laughs> he, I'm sorry, but he doesn't even sweat. I mean, you want me to turn the heart of King Artaxerxes? I can do that. Nehemiah, thank you for asking. If we believe in the sovereignty of God, we'll be people of prayer because God can. You ready for the second question? Do, can God? The second question is, does God care? Does God care? Did you notice there at the end of verse 8 what Nehemiah said again? He said, for the good hand of my God was upon me. The good hand. The good and gracious hand. I'm going to get a little personal here. But I know from my own experience as a Christian, and I know having dealt with people pastorally over the years, that sometimes as Christians we have this attitude in our hearts, why would God want to hear from me? Why would God care about me? I have let Him down so many times. Do you know how many times God has told me to do something and I've not done it? Do you know how many times He's told me not to do something and I've done it? Do you know how many times I've offended God, I've let God down? Why, why would He want to listen to me? Why would He want me in His throne room? And it's almost as if we're afraid to ask anything because we think he, he wouldn't want the likes of me around Him. He wouldn't want the likes of me in His throne room. What are we forgetting when we have that attitude? I, I still remember one time years ago when Gladine and I were going through a hard time and 
We were traveling for speaking engagement and had a wonderful lunch with a Sovereign Grace pastor friend of ours. We were pouring our hearts out to him of the rough time we were going through and how discouraged we were. And I'll never forget, he looked at us across the table in that restaurant and said, what attributes of God are you forgetting? Zing. <laughs> what attributes of God are you forgetting? It was an excellent question. I didn't like him asking, but it was an excellent question. You know, sometimes we forget that God is sovereign. We forget that he can. And we just don't ask because we don't think he's going to do anything. We don't think he can do anything. But, but that's not a common problem. I think a much more common problem is we wrestle with that he cares. We say, does he really care about me? And we're forgetting something. We picture God on his throne, and if we have the audacity to come into his throne room with our request, we, we picture him as leaning away from us. He's leaning away from us, and his arms are crossed, and he's, he's got this frown on his face. Like, what are you doing in here? And we picture him that way. We picture him leaning back, arms crossed, frown on his face. Who do you think you are to come into my throne? we're picturing that way. It's a false picture, but we picture him that way because we're looking at ourselves and we're thinking he wouldn't want the likes of me in his presence. But what are we forgetting, my friends? What are we forgetting when we think of him that way? We're forgetting Christ. We're forgetting Christ. Because when he looks at you, Christian, he sees his son. He sees his son. You are in him. You are in Christ. You've been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. And it's because of the blood of Christ that you are not only allowed into the throne room, you are invited into the throne room of the King of kings and the Lord of lords that you would find grace in your time of need. I think of what the author of Hebrews said. He said in chapter 10, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us then, chapter 4, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Is God able, my friends? Is He able? Does He care? Yes. He cares about you because of His Son. His Son redeemed you, fellow Christian. You were sprinkled over with the blood of Christ. And rather, rather than seeing God leaning away from us with arms crossed, because of Christ, because of Christ and His shed blood, we need to see our Heavenly Father on His throne leaning toward us, arms open wide, with a smile on His face. Because of Christ. Not because you've had a good day. Not because you're such a good person. But because of Jesus. He's smiling at you, my Christian friend, because he loves his son and he sprinkled you with the blood of Christ. 
And so believing that God is sovereign, that's an attribute of God. And believing that God is gracious, that's an attribute of God based on the work of Jesus Christ. We know that he can, and we know that he cares. And so we pray. And so we plan. We go forward in life, full confidence that God can and God cares. Let me just make a minute or two comment about how that affects us, not only as individuals, but as a church. What are we praying for as a church? What are we planning as a church? I I, I grieve sometimes that as a church, we can give way to pessimism. You know, like, oh, you know, know, we, we come up with all kinds of things. Christians, church, we have every reason to be biblical optimists. We have every reason to be biblical optimists because God can and God cares. He cares about us. We don't need any more proof than the work of Christ himself on our behalf. And we should pray big prayers our coming to a king. Large petitions must be great. And I was thinking about that the other day. I was thinking of how my faith has been stretched as one of your pastors. I, I want to tell you just a real quick story. Back in the mid-90s, there was a group of people, a group of dear faithful members of our church that on their own began to get together and pray, Lord, raise up people from this church to go out into the mission field. And before that, we had not had anybody leave our chairs to go to the mission field. But this group of people began to pray, Lord, raise up people from this church to go to the field. And within a few months, we had not one, not two, not three, we had four families sitting on these chairs who said, we'll go, we'll go. And here I am, the lead pastor at that point, and I'm thinking, we don't even have 200 people in our church. We don't even have 200 people. How? How in the world? How in the world are we going to have the funds? How are we going to get the resources? How are we going to get the know-how to send four families from our own church? And I didn't express that publicly, but I'll tell you in my private prayers, I'm like, Lord, how's this going to work? And how are we going to replace these people? Lord, these are some of our key people. What's going to happen to the work here? Some of you are around back then. I realize most of you are new to the church since then, but some of you are around in the mid-90s. All four of those families went. The leader of that prayer group is now with the Lord. With their dear friend, John Lloyd. John's example of believing in the sovereignty of God and the grace of God and how that affected his prayer life, that impacted me. I was his pastor, but I'll tell you, he impacted me, the way he prayed. In faith, Lord, do great things. Do things that we cannot explain any other way than your hand. And the Lord supplied. He moved the people of CCC to be generous when we sent those four families. And they were the first fruits. They weren't the last. They were the first fruits. And we've continued to send people since then. Large petitions must be bringing to 